uh, wonderful to lift our voices in praise to the Lord together. Uh, you can open your Bibles up to Exodus 33 or thereabouts. We're in this section of the book of Exodus uh, in between the instructions to build the tabernacle and for the high priests and the actual building of the tabernacle and the ordaining of the high priest and the other priests. And so this section for uh, chapters 32 to 34 deals with the whole golden calf incident and then the aftermath of that. And the last two Sundays, beginning in chapter 32 and verse 1, all the way up until 33.6, we have been talking about the human problem, which is exemplified in Israel in this moment. It's the problem of sin and rebellion against God. And so what we saw the last couple of weeks is we saw Israel's sin and their turning from God and from devotion to him and loyalty to him to create this golden calf and then to worship this false idol and attribute their redemption from Egypt to this idol. And so they become idolaters, they become rebellious. God calls them multiple times a stiff-necked people who are disobedient to him. Now this story that we have been looking at and explaining the, the results and the implications of sin in judgment on Israel Keep in mind that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament wrote to the Corinthians and reminded them of this story and told them that they needed to learn from this and make application to their lives from this story. And so let me remind you of what he told them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 6, he said, Now these things, and he's talking about this story from Exodus, here and Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And so part of the primary application for this is for us to examine our own lives in the sense of our desires, our want-tos, what we're affectionate toward, what we want in life. And then he continues on, and a little bit later, he sort of draws all of this to a, a main point and says this. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, this is for you and this is for me. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. And we learn from this story because of what he says here in verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Look, Israel went through it. We go through a similar thing as it relates to our desires and our want-tos. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. But for the believer, God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so I hope, as you listened the last couple of weeks, as you listened to me talk about Israel's sin and how heinous it was and how terrible it was and all of the difficulties that it created for them and in their lives, I hope that at some point in that whole explanation of their sin that your thought went from Israel is nuts, which you probably should have thought that at some point in the story, because they kind of are nuts in that story. 
It's crazy how quickly they turn their backs on the Lord. And so I hope you went from Israel's nuts to I have those same tendencies. I, I would have no doubt been right there with the crowd worshiping that golden calf. And I hope you went to, in your own life, I tend to make idols out of created things. It may not have been a golden calf, or it may not be one in your life, but it is probably a variety of created things that you desire and worship more than the Lord. I hope in your mind you went to, I tend to defy God. I rebel against Him. I read things in Scripture that are absolutely clear, and I ignore them. I hope you went to, my desires and impulses are all out of whack sometimes, and they're aimed often at the wrong things. And so I hope as you listened to that explanation of human sin, it's so important that you think the way Paul says to think here. Don't think so highly of yourself. Beware, because you are tempted in the same way, and I am tempted in the same way that Israel was tempted. So I hope you could see yourself and humble your heart and acknowledge your own patterns of sin. That's important for us. For me, as a regular part of my devotional life, I have started using the Book of Common Prayer and praying out of that several times a week. And every single day, as you pray through what they give you in the Book of Common Prayer, there is a prayer in the morning of confession of sin. And I think this is important to acknowledge for us. Let me read that prayer. I think I put it on the screen here as well. Yeah. Here's what you pray and and use as the basis for your time of prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. Now, this is not a rote prayer that you say every day and you're good to go. And this is not a prayer that you pray in order to beat yourself up. But it is a way for you to come to grips with the fact that every single day we do not live as we ought. That we're still battling against sin. And part of that battle against sin is understanding it's there and confessing it and repenting and turning from it. And Martin Luther said that all of the Christian life, the Christian life is one of of, of repentance. Every day, that needs to be a part of who we are and what we do, is we repent, we see our sin, and we turn from it. And it's important because part of the confession is the recognition that I really do want to change. And I know this is true of many of you. You desperately want to change. You see Israel's sin. You know you're tempted in the same way. I see it. I know I'm tempted in the same way. And I think, I I don't want to be tempted like that. I want to change. I don't want to wake up grumpy in the morning for some unknown reason. I don't want to be short with my kids. I don't want to read into people's motives all the time and assume the worst of people. But it's so hard. And sin comes so easily and naturally It seems to be what just pops out of me at times without even thinking about it. And because of that, because sin comes so naturally to me, I don't want surface change. And my guess is you don't either. You don't want to put a facade on. You want it to be deep and lasting. You want it to stick. 
You want your dispositions and your desires to change where now you want the right things and not the wrong things. I want my heart to be rewired and remade so that instead of my first reaction being one of sin and anger and frustration, now my first reaction is one of faith and trust in the Lord and joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. How does that happen? How does that rewiring take place? I want to read you a quote from a very old book by a guy named Henry Scogel, and here's what he said. The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections. This is it. This is how that deep and lasting change takes place. It's not by making a list of all the things you need to do better and trying better every day to do those things and then getting up the next day and trying again. The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections that we may have them always before us. God's character, his love, his mercy, his grace, his justice, his holiness, his righteousness and derive an impression of them on ourselves. And beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. So here's how that change takes place in you, and here's how it takes place in me. It's by fixing our gaze on God's character, by seeing him for who he truly is, And this author quotes this passage from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord. That's the key. Beholding the glory of the Lord. His character in all of its beauty and wonder are being transformed into the same image. We become like him from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Change happens. Real, actual, genuine change where you and I can be different people one year from now than we are right now. You have new desires. Your impulses, your disposition is different. It happens as you see and behold the glory of the Lord, the beautiful character of your God. And when you behold his character, that leaves a deep impression on your soul. And it remakes and remolds you into his image. Another author put it a little bit differently, a more modern author, and said it like this. And I like this too. Grace brings us to our senses. Seeing God's grace, his love, his his character, the beauty of the work of Christ in the cross that expresses God's character, it brings us to our senses, delivering us from the insanity of sin. And so here's the thing in this passage. We've spent the last two weeks talking about the insanity of sin and its implications for us. Now the story turns the page. And now the rest of the story, so beautifully structured by Moses as he wrote this in two parts, chapter 32.1 to 33.6 is one part explaining to us the human problem of sin and the judgment that comes from it. And now he turns the page and now the focus is on God's character and specifically on his mercy 
and his grace. And so in this story, there's this incredible movement that you can trace through it. And it's this movement that you have to see because it's key to understanding how mercy is the basis of everything we're going to look at today and next week. This passage, this story shows this movement from God being willing to completely destroy Israel. Remember that? Chapter 32 and verse 10, God tells Moses, I want to wipe them off the face of the earth and start over again with you. Then in chapter 33 and verse 3, he's not going to destroy them, but he says, well, I'm just not going to go with you to the promised land. You won't have my presence with you. Then, as you'll see this week, you get to chapter 33 and verse 17, and God now agrees to go with them. And then you get to chapter 34 and verse 10, the last verse that Dom read this morning, and God says, I'm going to ratify the covenant, reinstitute the covenant again with you, and make you my special people, and I'm going to do amazing things through you. What brings that change, that shift in the story about that movement It's God's mercy and his grace. That's the theme of this story and of this passage that we're going to look at this week and next. So we talked about human sin. Now we're going to pivot and talk about grace and mercy to sinful people in particular. So here's what we're going to see this week and next. Seven features of divine mercy that God has made known. Look, the the purpose here is to put God's mercy on display so that we can behold it, and so that we can be changed by that mercy and grace, so that that grace can bring us to our senses, and now we see the insanity of sin. That's what we're doing. We're putting, as Exodus is, God's character on display so you can see it and be changed by it. Seven features of divine mercy that God has made known. The first one of these is that it is a personal mercy. This is in 33, verses 7 through 11. Let me remind you of what has happened, if you've not been with us, what we've seen over the last couple weeks. Israel sins against God, and God brings several judgments on them in this passage. Remember this? He sends the Levites through the camp, and they go through the camp, and they ask people if they're repentant of sinning, is the implication of the text, if they're turning from their worship of the idol to God, They're going to turn back to God, and when they don't, they kill them in order to rid Israel of those that have led them astray. And about 3,000 people die on that day. Then at the end of chapter 32, God sends a plague, a disease on them that apparently went through the camp. Then in chapter 33, at the beginning, maybe the most severe blow yet beyond The killing of those 3,000 and of the plague is that God says, I'm not going to go with you, among you, up to the promised land. You won't be my special people in the same way. I'll give you the promised land, but you won't get my presence with you. And so all of those are judgments on them as a result of their sin. And the people understand how bad this is. I mean, look at verse 4 of chapter 33. When the people heard this disastrous word, They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And so God tells them, as a sign of their repentance and of their sorrow, of their mourning, they need to take off their jewelry, and they do so. They listen to him. Look at verses 5 and 6. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. 
Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And you can see here, even with God's words in verse 5, that he may know what to do with them, there's sort of this pause in the story and this ambiguity about what's going to happen next. What is God going to do with them? He's already brought judgment on them. They're seeming like they're repentant. They they understand the gravity of God's presence not going with them. And so what's going to happen here? Now we get to chapter 33, verses 7 through 11, and this is almost like a little interlude here. It's like Moses, in writing this book, breaks up the story a little bit, and he tells us about his personal relationship with God, and he does this for a reason. We'll get to that reason in a minute. But these sort of meetings, like he describes here, probably had been taking place since Israel left Egypt. Look look what happens here, verse 7 through verse 11. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice again what I just read in verse 11, that God speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Now, Moses is not gazing at God's face in all of his glory. We'll see that later on. I think the implication of verse 9 is there's a tent in between them. God stands outside the tent at the entrance and speaks through the tent with Moses. But nonetheless, he has a close and a special friendship with God. And that's an important point for you to understand in this this narrative, in this story. This relationship is going to prove vital for Israel and for their hope of God coming to dwell among them. It's an important friendship. So how did this friendship come about? Why is Moses this close to God? Well, it came about not because of anything good in Moses. This came about purely because of God's mercy and grace. I mean, it's easy as you're reading through this and you you see Moses being this close to God, it's easy to forget how this book began and the relationship that Moses had with God at the beginning of this book. Moses had to flee Egypt because he had killed a man. Then he hid in the wilderness for 40 years. God sought him out, revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And you remember that whole conversation? Moses keeps like trying to get out of going back and and helping Israel, being God's chosen spokesperson to help Israel get out of Egypt. And Moses tries to get out of it to the point where it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. It's almost like God can't take it anymore and he's frustrated with him because he won't just do what he says, even though God promises to be with him. And so it's kind of a rocky beginning, but this relationship has developed to the point here by God's mercy and grace where God speaks with Moses as a man speaks with his friend. 
And here's the point I want to draw your attention to. God's mercy demonstrated in this relationship with Moses is a personal mercy. It's to this individual man by God's grace. Now, I understand you and I are certainly not Moses, right? We don't have his status, but God's mercy nonetheless is a personal individual mercy for you and for me. He has been gracious to you in all the gifts that he has given in the fact that you have heard the gospel and you have a relationship with him. If you do this morning, God's mercy has been extended to you. And for Moses, this personal mercy puts him in a position to plead with God on Israel's behalf. And he pleads with God on Israel's behalf because of our second feature of God's mercy that he's made known. He wants his mercy to be a displayed mercy. It's a personal mercy to an individual, and then it expands out from there so that others can see it. Here's what I mean. God's character is always meant to be put on display. By God's nature, as a going and sending and active God, he always wants to put his character on display. He wants who he is to go public. And Moses seems to grasp this throughout this story. And so he pleads with God on this basis, that God has a displayed mercy. Look at verse 12. Now we get back to the story. The conversation. We left it sort of a, in an unknown state of what's going to happen and what God's going to do with Israel. And now Moses pleads for Israel based on God's mercy. P Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, Moses here is probably referring back to chapter 32 and verse 34. Look back there real quickly. God says, but now go lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And so when he says God told him to bring the people up, this is what he's talking about. When God told Moses, look, you need to continue on this journey and take the people to the promised land. He's also probably referencing God's judgment on Israel that he will not go among them and with them. And he's probably referencing God's promise in Exodus 3. What did God promise Moses? He would lead Israel, redeem them out of Egypt, and take them all the way to the promised land. And God had given Moses a status of, of mercy and grace and special favor. He'd given him the status as his spokesperson, and now Moses is going to use that favor and mercy to plead with God on Israel's behalf. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. So there's two requests here. We draw your attention to both of these. First, Moses asks God if he will show him his ways. I think this is a request to know what God's planning to do in the immediate future. 
Everything's sort of in a holding pattern, and Moses is like, okay, what are you going to do here? I want to know your ways. What's going to happen now? And he wants to know God's plan and his ways because that's one of the ways in which you know who God is by what he does. He wants to know God's working so he can get a better glimpse of God's character. And so his heart here, Moses' heart, is to know God better. He wants to understand more of who he is. But he doesn't stop with himself getting to know God better. Instead, look at the end of verse 13. Look what he says. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. He wants the entire nation of Israel included in this knowledge of God. And so, based on this, God agrees to go with Moses. And Moses responds by highlighting why God's presence is so important. Look at verses 14 to 16. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, Moses, back to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And then verse 16 is the key of the whole section in seeing God's mercy being put on display. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of of the earth. God's character, in particular his mercy and grace, demonstrated to Moses and to Israel are meant to be made known. That's what Moses is getting at here. We saw this in chapter 32, where Moses was worried about the Egyptians' perspective of God if God were to destroy the Israelites outright. And so, in this chapter, Israel is shown mercy in this situation and they're made God's covenant people so that they can put that mercy on display, so that they can go public before the nations with God's character. And this is part of God's purpose in making them a nation. Now, let's bring that displayed mercy as being a key feature of God's mercy And the reason that Israel has shown mercy is to put him on display. Let's bring that forward to you and to me and to our lives today in the culture that we live in. Honestly, this is one of the things that is so disheartening to me, maybe to you as well, when I look around at the public witness of the church, and not just the church out there, but us as individual people today. There's a tension here. I I understand this. Let me describe the tension that I'm talking about, that I hear from people describing how we should relate to the culture around us. There is a sense in which we we can't pursue, as Christians, you can't pursue the world's approval. I, I get that, and that's biblical, and you'll see that in a second. There's the reality that as Christians, you're never going to get the world's full approval. And so there's a sense in which we don't make that our aim and our goal. The culture around us is, to some extent, always going to view our beliefs and our practices and our lifestyle as Christians as weird and odd and backwards. That is true. The Bible's clear. The gospel is offensive to the unbelieving mind. That is true, and that's one side of this tension. The problem comes, though, when it's not the gospel message itself 
that is offensive to the world, but it's the vessel in which the message comes. When we are the problem and we are what's offensive, sometimes we're just bad witnesses to God's mercy and grace. We're just rude to the unbelievers around us. Let me remind you of this important passage that references Israel in the language that Peter uses here. And this, this has that tension bound up in it, and I think you'll see this, and it's really helpful. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. Let's start in verse 9 and look at the language here. This is language that was used of Israel in the Old Testament. But you, now speaking to the church, to you and to me, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Why are we God's special people? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a believer. I'm a believer to put God's excellencies and character on display. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, man, we are, we're meant to put that mercy on display in a glorious way. But Peter goes further here and explains what this looks like in the culture around us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this is not our home in this culture. We're not primarily citizens of this world or of any particular nation. We're sojourners and exiles here to abstain from the passions or the desires of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And then here's his specific application. Notice the tension here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the world around you, honorable. So we are supposed to live in a way with a lifestyle, with conduct that is honorable. It's good and it's beautiful to those outside of us, to the world around us. That's how we're supposed to live. And that puts God's mercy and his grace on display. Our lives are to be lived in a way that is beautiful and attractive to those around us. But now, notice how he addresses the tension. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Wait a minute. If your conduct's honorable and beautiful and attractive, how in the world are they going to speak against you as an evildoer? Well, that's the world we live in. There will be times when our good is spoken of as evil. No doubt about it. In a world that believes love is love, no matter what, it's considered evil and immoral to clearly articulate why God's good design for human beings is lifelong monogamous marriage between one man and one woman. When you make that case, though, you are to do it in a way that is honorable and is beautiful and is attractive and is good. And beyond making that case, which we are to do, and it will be considered immoral by the world, the rest of your life is to be so filled with good deeds and honorable conduct that even those good deeds are noticeable to the world around you. And that's how he ends. That when they speak against you as evildoers, when they disagree with you and think one aspect of what you believe and teach is immoral, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's this tension here 
that we, we have to live in the midst of and navigate, but we have to live in a way that is honorable and beautiful and at the same time understand that it will never be met with full approval, and that's okay, as long as we're not the problem and the message is the problem to those around us. And so, jumping back into Exodus 33 now from that application for us, the point is that God's mercy is to be proclaimed and put on display through his people. That's the goal. And he continues to show mercy to Israel in order that that may happen. Look at verse 17 in chapter 33. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And so God responds because his mercy is meant to be put on display to draw people to him. And he says, yes, I'm going to continue to show mercy to Israel in order that this may happen more. And Moses seizes on this act of mercy and presses further into it. And this is our third feature of divine mercy, and this is the last one we'll hit this morning. It is a sovereign mercy. So it's personal in that it comes to individuals. It is displayed in that it is meant to be proclaimed, and our lives are meant to put God's mercy in the public eye. And then third, it is a sovereign mercy. So Moses follows up God's affirmation that he will go with them. He will answer Moses's requests in order that his name may be made known. And look what he says, what Moses says in verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. I mean, in some ways, I think this is the request of the book, right? I mean, this is why we're studying this book. And this is what what we want to get after here. It's to see God's glory, to see his character. Moses has seen God's work throughout this book, hasn't he? I mean, we talked about Moses' journey a few minutes ago, but think of all that he has been through. Moses has watched God deliver all of these people by his sovereign and powerful hand. He's watched God destroy his enemies. He's watched God be patient with these people who he has delivered. He's watched them judge them in jealousy and righteous anger. And he's watched God just now respond to Moses with mercy and grace by agreeing to go with these sinful people and dwell among them. And so he's seen all of this, all of these these different facets of God's actions and of his character. He's seen this amazing God And had God reveal himself to him, and Moses is intrigued, and he wants to know more. He wants a closer experience of God. He wants to know better what he is like. And we'll find out later that what Moses is actually asking is to see God's face. We'll get into that next week. But here's how God responds. Look in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So let's break apart what God says here. First of all, he tells Moses he's going to make all of his goodness pass before him. And this doesn't mean he's going to completely to the bottom of the depths of God's character, reveal all that he is to Moses because there's no way God could do that with Moses. 
But what he is saying here is, I'm going to make nothing but my goodness pass before you. Now, that's an interesting way to put it, because if you think about it, there isn't anything other than goodness in God. And so this is all that God has, and it's all that he is going to put on display for Moses. God's character is nothing but beauty and goodness. And the word here of goodness carries the idea of the best things. He's going to highlight who he truly is and put his attributes on display for Moses. And the beauty that he's going to put on display is the proclamation of his name. Now, keep in mind, back in Exodus 3 and 4, Moses asked God who it was that he should tell Israel was sending him. And God responded, this is my name, the Lord. And so now God is saying, I'm going to explain further and further reveal the definition of this name to you. This is who I truly am. This is who he's been learning about throughout the book, and now God is going to proclaim his character quite clearly to Moses and to us. And God's revelation of himself is going to come to Moses because he's absolutely sovereign. Look what he says again in verse 19. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, we've already talked about how it's in God's nature to display his mercy, to show mercy and love and grace to people. But it's also true that God does that on his terms and on his timetable. He's going to reveal himself to Moses because he decides to. Not even necessarily because Moses asks in some ways, but because he wants to. Because that's the type of God he is. And think about that for a second. The fact that God's mercy is shown to you and me by his sovereign choice makes it that much more beautiful. It doesn't take anything away from it. It actually puts it on display more. And here's why. Because God is under no obligation to show any of us mercy or grace when we sin. He's not bound to do that. He's not required by some outside law to show mercy and grace. He is under no constraint to do anything. And when he does demonstrate grace and mercy to people who are undeserving of it, it's purely because of his beautiful goodness. And it's because he has decided in his grace to do that. And when you recognize that, the sovereign aspect of his mercy, then it only should increase your wonder and your awe that you and I are sitting here today as recipients of his mercy and grace. Why in the world are we here and not out living our lives like the rest of the world, bound for hell in our sins? Why in the world do we have new life and the Holy Spirit and are able to understand God's word? Why have we received the gospel? Because God in his sovereign mercy and grace has shown compassion to you and compassion to me. That's why we're recipients of his mercy, because it's a sovereign mercy, and we are unworthy to receive it. Now, I think this brings us to a good stopping point. We've got a lot more to jump into next week, and I'm excited to get into chapter 34 and the clear revelation of who God is, and then to jump forward into the New Testament from this. 
But we're going to continue to unfold the features of God's mercy next Sunday. And I hope, my prayer is, that these two weeks, maybe three, we'll see how it goes, that this time of just sitting and gazing on God's mercy will bring the response to us that it brought to Moses, which as Dom read this morning was a response of immediate falling on his face before God and of worshiping him, because that is the appropriate response to his sovereign revelation of his mercy and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time together this morning. We pray for our hearts and our minds as we consider what we have studied in this passage, that these features, these facets of your mercy would be like facets of a beautiful diamond that we turn over and over again and continue to see the the sparkle and the glory and the greatness of who you are. Help us to meditate on these truths and mull them over and ask questions of them in our minds this week so that we can grow in our appreciation of you and our worship of, of your mercy and your grace. We thank you for our time together this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.